Okay. Well, uh, if you've been if you've been journeying with us for the past few weeks, you know that we have been in a teaching series called "How Not to Read the Bible." And um, this series has been a deep dive into some of the most complex, difficult, strange, tough to understand parts of scripture. And this is some, something I love about our church community, something I love about all of you, like you hunger for this stuff. You don't want easy, trite, shallow answers. You're so um, into diving in uh, and confronting some of the complexity. And so today, um, a special day, you guys, this entire series, How Not to Read the Bible, has been based on a book of the same title, How Not to Read the Bible, by a dear friend of ours named Dan Kimball. And Dan serves on staff at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz. I had the privilege of serving alongside him uh, for several years before I came back to Westgate. And uh, Dan has such deep roots with Westgate, you guys. He and Steve Clifford served together on staff um, at a church in Santa Cruz for 10 years uh, when, when I was like in third grade or something a long time ago. And, and, um, and obviously I served with Dan uh, in Santa Cruz for several years. And long before all of that, long before Dan became one of my closest friends on the planet, truly, um, he was influencing and, and shaping my life. When I was in my 20s, I went through a whole deconstruction phase and it really was Dan through some of his books and some of his speaking um, that God used him and his work and his ministry um, to change the trajectory of my life. And so I, I owe a lot to him. And um, today he's going to dive into a topic that Steve nor I wanted to teach because it's so complex. So we were like, Dan, can you come do it? Because we don't want to. And so, um, man, I'm so thrilled that you all are going to learn from him together. So would you please give a warm Westgate welcome to my dear friend, Dan Kimball. I, I will say that Jay's hair is looking mighty fine, too. It's a little higher, and I hope it keeps going higher. The uh, higher the hair, the closer to God. Um, okay. Um, yes, it's a beautiful, you know, it's like a beautiful, beautiful sunny day. I'm driving over uh, from Santa Cruz, um, and, uh, you know, the sky is all brilliant. You know, it's nice weather out. And now we're here, and we're going to talk about the horror of Old Testament violence and making sense of the text of terror. So it's like coming in, uh, and Jay's correct, uh, this is out of the six weeks of this teaching series, I do think this is the most difficult one to address. Uh, I know it was for me writing the book, is that this section by far is the most difficult to write about and comprehend. So I hope that this morning we will, even though it's a really um, you know, uncomfortable topic, there's no other way to talk about this, like it's an uncomfortable, I can just feel it, uncomfortable topic to talk about. Um, I'm gonna give confidence that uh, there are reasons, explanations, and, and ways to look at God with full confidence as we learn of his love and compassion and forgiveness um, in the midst of seeing some of these violent texts. This is a really important topic because this is the topic that so often you are hearing um, raised up as criticism against the scriptures, against the Bible, and people are saying, uh, they're deconstructing faith and saying, I can't believe anymore because of these verses. So I'm hoping this morning will be a, uh, a, a encouraging one, even though 
It's an uncomfortable one. Um, and there's no other way to say it. It's an uncomfortable topic. So let's get into it uh, this morning here. When I have this Bible, uh, you know, I read through it about once a year for the most part, and it is just filled with, you know, like joy and God's story and love and compassion. I love going through the scriptures uh, just constantly. And, uh, and in this Bible, you hear stories, like especially if you're growing up in a church, and we'll see stories generally, like you'll hear ones that are highlighted more often than others, um, and you'll hear like Noah and the ark. And you'll see in a children's Sunday school classroom, you know, something like this. And we see the, the happy animals on the ark, you know, and, and Noah's usually like a Santa Claus looking figure and these things. And like we'll see these, you know, uh, you hear about them, kids grow up like Noah and the ark and the animals. However, when you start reading and thinking about it a little bit more, and you'll read like, you know, in Genesis chapter six, verse 17, when it then says, this is God's words talking about the flood in Noah and the ark, and it says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath, the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish, right? So you normally think of Noah's and the ark and children's Sunday school classrooms like we saw. We don't walk in and see, you know, images like this one on this, you know, on kids' classrooms, right? Uh, but yet, this is the story. Um, another one, you know, another example is say like Joshua. I just, last week, I just found this image. It's something that you can purchase to have on the wall of your Sunday school class. Uh, and it's the happy story, you know, and this is normally how you think of this, of Joshua, you know, marching around Jericho and blowing the trumpets and the walls come down, like everybody's happy and cheering, right? And, and you'll see this portrayed, so if you're listening to these stories and this is what you see, but then you read about it and you think about it a little bit more beyond just these images and say in Joshua chapter six, verse 20 and 21, it says, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city, and then it talks a little bit more, and it says, they devoted the city to the Lord, and they destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old. So you're looking here as, as much as that one image you know, is uh, fun about the trumpet sounding and the walls falling down, but then when they went inside, it says with the sword they killed. And it, you know, it says here, um, young and old, meaning elderly and probably children. So like that doesn't seem as just fun and uh, cartoon-like as that image. What you'll see is also things like in Psalm 137, verse nine, it's being depicted and these things are being now pointed out on the internet like over and over and over again and you'll see like, oh, look at what your God is like. And generally the criticism will say like, look at what he says. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Okay, again, uh, mocking, there'll be mocking of the Bible and here's a nice little heart-shaped uh, you know, type of um, uh, thing with, with the Bible verse up there. 
You know, and you don't see a verse like this, happy is the one who sees your infants and dashes them against their ox. It's the women's ministry theme verse for the retreat. You know, it's like, yet, what's going on is you're seeing these things pointed out. We're seeing, I mean, I've had many conversations now and then been, since been paying attention to hear of these conversations of kids growing up in churches, then they reach college age, and then they start like reading the Bible a little bit more for themselves, and it's not just their parents' faith, and what's going on is these are the very verses and stories and things about God that are then being pointed out to say like, look, this is what you really believe? And that's why this is a serious topic, and this one in particular is one that's probably, again, the most difficult to respond to, but one that is the most commonly used to tear down the Bible and why some people are abandoning the faith over these type of passages. Now, you'll see things. Again, there's, uh, I say, when I say atheists, about 99% of atheists are just happy, wonderful people that are kind, loving, and they don't bother with Christians. They just like, leave, leave us all alone. But then there are those, the 1%, that are the activists. And you'll see them creating memes and diagrams like this, like this billboard that's saying, look, look, I hate babies. And there's all these Bible verses, like the one that I just said, where infants are then allegedly killed. You'll see things like this, these memes. Here's a, uh, like a kind of a dad. Doesn't let his children watch violent movies, tells them to read the Old Testament, right? So, In other words, the Old Testament is filled with violence, and it is, and yet we say, don't watch those movies, but read your Bible, and then you open the Bible, and there's a lot of violence and death. Here's a chart that was put together of like how many God kills in the Bible and how many Satan kills. It's like, look, look there, and there's warning labels, kind of like mock warning labels. You can actually order these. I did order one um, that they'll say like, you should have the warning labels on Bibles like you do for you know, M, uh, was it NC-17 films or mature TV shows. Like the Bible should have a warning label. You know, and they put it up and they'll say like, you know, this is all the things that are contained in it. Why do you let kids read the Bible if this stuff's in it? And then you don't let them watch TV about other things. Even A.A. A. Milne, who's the author of Winnie the Pooh, He said this, the Old Testament is responsible for more atheism, agnosticism, disbelief, call it what you will, than any book ever written. It has emptied more churches than all of the counter-attractions of cinema, motor bicycle, and golf course. So like in, in that day when he was writing this, saying like, look at the things that are taking people away from the church, and he's saying it's really the Bible that will uh, empty the church if people really read it. So the question I'm looking into this morning is how do we explain this, right? It's a good question. Uh, How do we explain this? Isn't the New Testament Jesus about love and peace and the Old Testament God seem violent and cruel, right? Like how do we put this together? How do we believe in this? And so before we go into some of the specifics, there's three ways that we can address this. One is just saying the no apology approach. And there are people that just say like, oh, yep, God killed all these people, babies, adults, whatever. That's God, he can do whatever he wants. So be it, that's it. Now, it's true, God can do whatever he wants. Right? We don't have, God is God, he can do whatever he wants, he is God. But I will say that if there isn't even any sense of like, uncomfortableness or uneasiness or like, 
oh my goodness, there must be reasons to think about it, but to just kind of callously, just God's God, whatever, and just keep going, um, that's not, I don't think, a good approach to take because it doesn't model even compassion. Now, I do believe God can do whatever he wants, right? So I'm not saying that's not true. But it should cause us to pause and wonder, like, why did he do these things? The second approach that is probably more common today than any other is the Bible is wrong approach. This is happening with many Christians that were raised up in churches and even a little older where they're now saying, well, um, I'm reading these violent passages. They've always been there, but now that I'm hearing about them more, God could not have written those. Like, that can't be God. So it's basically the people of Israel created those stories and, and they're not really what happened. They're just trying to paint God as a, a warrior uh, for the people of Israel. So those stories aren't really true because God would not do those things. Now, when you're taking this approach, you are then turning the Bible into something it's not, right? This, these scriptures, you know, if it's on your phone or however you have them, like, these are the Holy Spirit, God used the Holy Spirit to write through people what we have here, all of it. To start saying, no, human beings had it wrong, or I like Jesus, I'll just read, I don't like Paul, or I don't like the stories in the Old Testament, I'll cut them out. Um, what's even happening is the cross is violent. Because if you go down that path, what ultimately ends up happening is, well, God wouldn't have used all violence against his own son. So that couldn't have happened. So Jesus basically died a martyr because he was sticking up against, you know, for the people, against the oppressive government at the time. And then what happens with this, and that's why I'm even spending a moment here, is then you're shaping a different gospel. It's an entirely false teaching and understanding of who Jesus is, but that the Bible is wrong approach, it ultimately leads to the cross is not about salvation and atonement. And that's, that's a different form of Christianity and that's often where this is leading. That's why it's serious. And the third way, which is the way that I believe and Westgate Church believes, is that the understanding of the whole Bible storyline to know God's character approach. Now, something that Westgate is doing is you have Bible 365, there's groups of you that are actually reading through the whole Bible. You can go online right now and join in some of these groups, which is a great thing. I try to read the Bible through every year because then it has you give you the whole story. So join a 365, Bible 365 group and you can go online and sign up. But understanding the whole storyline and then knowing God's character then puts these acts of violence into perspective. Now, the first week of this teaching series, you walk through some basic Bible study methods. The Bible is a library, not a book. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. Never read a Bible verse in isolation, and all the Bible points to Jesus. Now, to make this, uh, to give you an easy one to look at, right, here's a meme that gets put up. And this, this Bible verse is commonly used to try to discredit the scriptures and say God is evil and he wants to kill children. Um, here's Psalm 137, and there it is, verse nine. And it looks so, you know, uh, here you have like a little girl reading the Bible and then the verse is about God, I'm sorry, about uh, dashing infants against rocks, right? Now, looking at that, you're like, that's, that's insane. That's what God does when you stop and you study it and then you look at it, it's not at all what's going on. It's easy to make a, a meme, kind of a cheap shot against the scriptures, but 
when you stop, never read a Bible verse by itself, you know, a quick response to this is one, it's not God doing the speaking there. When you look at the psalm, it's the psalmist, it's his words, not the words of God. Secondly, when you look at it in the story, in the context, and when it was written in the story of Israel, Psalm 137 verse nine is not a literal plan to kill babies, nor was it a command by God to go and do this. It was a poetic expression of horror, grief, and longing for justice, expressing human emotions from the psalmist who had just witnessed this when uh, happening by the Babylonians to Israel. When the Babylonians went in and ransacked Jerusalem and they would practice, they would just come in and kill, and what you have is a psalmist crying out for justice and poetically writing these words. He probably, we don't know if his own family members were killed, we don't know, but to then say, look, that's what God is saying and he hits babies, like, it's totally misrepresenting the scriptures. But it certainly makes a good meme. And so many people are just seeing these images and not putting it into the story or checking out the truth behind it. So what I'm gonna do now is go through seven pretty quick sort of uh, uh, approaches to be thinking about when we're looking at any of these violent verses to make sense of them. So the first one is when you know the whole Bible storyline, you then know God's character. This prevents you or I from making inaccurate conclusions about him from only seeing certain verses. Right? This is so much behind all of these criticisms of, of the Bible and Christianity. Um, the, here's the most quoted verse that God says about himself. This is, you could say, is God's pinned tweet, like what he wants people to know about himself. It comes from Exodus chapter 34, verse six through seven. So here's what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Right? I read that, and that's the God I know. I read that, and that's just not from an isolated verse, that I'm just reading this verse. I have, for 30 plus years now, I have been studying the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation. And what I can say is when I think of God, that's what I'm thinking about. Not just from this one verse, but from the story, from Genesis through Revelation, all of the interactions through human beings, what, uh, when Jesus was here, that we, I'm forgiven for my rebellion and my wickedness and my sin, like that's the God I know. Because I then know his whole story. And that's why scripture's so important, so that we can say God or Jesus, but are we making it up in our head or are we basing it out of who God revealed himself to be through the whole scriptures? And what I can tell you is that's the God I know. That's him. When I think of the scriptures, that's the God. That's the God of, this, of the scriptures. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. It just makes me like, Thank you, Lord, that that's who you are, right? But if you don't know him, and then you just see little bits and pieces pointed out, you can say, this God must be 
a genocidal maniac and cruel and wicked. Now, let me use an illustration. Um, you know, most of you, I'm assuming, know the story of Mary Poppins, right? Mary Poppins was a uh, magical nanny who comes into the Banks family, that's the name of the family, and she's there to help the family. And she's there to, uh, uh, you know, she's there for goodness, and she's a positive person. Uh, so when you know Mary, you know the movie, when you think of Mary, you think of Mary Poppins, the magical nanny who wants to help the family. Now, what if you never knew the story of Mary Poppins, and someone just pulls out little bits and pieces and clips it all together to try to portray Mary in a certain way? Uh, we're gonna watch a, a clip, it's about 60 seconds long, of someone who did that. So let's watch this version of Mary Poppins that someone put together. those little clips of Mary Poppins from the actual story? Yes, right? When, if you were to see that clip without knowing the real story, you'd conclude, scary Mary, hide your children, right? Because you're pulling out little bits, portraying Mary in a certain way. If you don't know the whole story, then that's gonna be the natural assumption is the horror film, keep your kids away from Mary. Right. What's happening today in our post-truth, respond from little bits and pieces of things and try to come to conclusions about God and the scriptures is the same thing. We're pulling out little bits and pieces, true stories, so they are in the storyline, but all of a sudden it's portraying God in a way that he's not. Right. There are true stories and things that occurred in the Bible story and certainly if that's all you're focusing on, then you might come to that conclusion, but then you're not studying the whole story of the scriptures and you don't know the God who is compassionate, loving, kind, forgiving, and that's so sad. And many people are getting duped and don't realize that. And they're missing out understanding the true God, not just the scary, merry version of God that's being portrayed. But let me, let's keep going because like, when you're seeing these stories and hearing them, like the Bible's filled with violence, another very important thing to know is that there are many, many bloody and violent stories in the Bible. However, they are when human beings chose to do violent acts on their own. It was not God telling them to do these things. There is all kinds of, that's what I love about the Bible. There's a lot, it's like his, historical records of different stories and different things that were happening. 
but uh, just uh, a week ago, someone was challenging me and like, hey, you know, there's that story where God cut up a woman in 12 pieces and, and I'm like, no, wait a minute, you're talking about that, I know what you're talking about, God didn't do it, you gotta stop and read the story. That was human beings that did that. God never instructed to cut up that woman into 12 pieces. You have to understand that so much of the violence in the scriptures are not God doing the violence, it's human beings who are doing it to each other. And actually I like that about the Bible because then it, it doesn't hide the, the, the kind of the, the uh, violent stuff that human beings did. But you always have to make sure that you're not saying God did it when he didn't do it, it was human beings. So that's another thing to notice, is that there's many stories, but it was not God doing it, it was human beings that did it. But what about the times when God does command violence? What about the times when you can't just erase them and say, oh, it's human beings, or you're taking it out of context? What about the times when God did order violence to occur and death happened. That's what I wanna look at now. One statement, and this will be the third observation, is that most of the times when you see God instructing violence to happen, it's sending Israel into battles, and it's also from a limited time period in the storyline of the Bible. It is not found throughout the entire storyline of the Bible that God just keeps having violence, violence, violence that he's committing or ordering. When you look at the Bible storyline um, up, up here, you'll see that it was primarily most of the criticism and the stories that you will see when God did instruct violence happened in a certain time period. I'm gonna talk about what that time period is next. But it was not just all throughout the whole Bible God is this bloody, violent God. Um, number four, a fourth thing, is that when you will see God instructing these, these battles to occur, it was not genocide. There's a big quote out now that's like, God is a genocidal maniac. You know, he's bloodthirsty, I'm like, that's so untrue. Again, it makes a nice quote, but when you read the actual scriptures, you, will, you don't see that. It wasn't about genocide. Genocide is about ethnicity. And this has nothing to do with the battles that occurred were not about ethnicity whatsoever. It was about, and this is an important distinction, it was about who God was driving out a people group, not a wiping out of a people group. I wanna say that again. It was about who was a driving out of people, not a wiping out. Now, why did God have to drive people out at all? Um, let me just do another quick uh, look at the Bible storyline. That's why it's so important to see the whole story. What you'll see in particular when it's talking about, say, Joshua and these stories of the Canaanites and the people of Israel, it's the most criticized part of the Bible with God when he did instruct violence to happen. God's presence was moving in. Okay, now, uh, God was clearing out false worshipers of other gods and these people groups who were choosing to reject the God of Israel. They all had the opportunity to turn from worshiping false gods and doing really wicked practices of worship and choose to follow the true God. But they chose not to, but it was God's presence that was moving in. This was God's land that the people of Israel were going back into. 
and it was to make a dwelling place and for the tabernacle, if you read that story of what happened in Exodus and onward, you'll see the tabernacle was built and Moses would meet with the, in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Then in Jerusalem, the temple was set up and the temple had the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was at. And what you'll see is the storyline was all about God's presence being brought into this land and that is why we then see a driving out happen because of God's holiness and his presence could not be having all of this wicked stuff going on there. Now again, looking at the Bible storyline, you have to then take a look at like in the beginning, God's presence was with human beings, Adam and Eve in the garden. When they rebelled against God, they lost his presence. A a well-known theologian, Bible scholar says he likes, instead of using the word fall, like using the word the loss, the loss of God's presence. So what you then see is God wanted to dwell with his people and have his presence there. And so then what you'll see is that after this loss and the fall, then with the people of Israel as they moved into this land, and there's a diagram of the tabernacle there, is like that was God's presence moving back in. And so it's, there's reasons for this. Um, when Jesus came, What was his name? Emmanuel, God with us. You'll see it in the Bible storyline. What happens in the new heavens and the new earth in the future? It's all about God's presence dwelling with us again. And then there, there's no more sin. And you'll see God is intimately involved with us, even says the description of wiping away our tears. And that's, so it's all about the Canaanites couldn't be there. That was the people that, that uh, Joshua and the others were uh, removing and getting out, was because they would negatively influence the people of Israel who were going to be hosts of God's presence going in. You'll see in Deuteronomy all of these warnings. There's multiple, multiple warnings that says to the people there, be careful, this is to Israel, or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. That's what was going on with the other people groups out there, that they were worshiping other gods, false gods, and really wicked stuff. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 31 and 32, it says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, talking about these people groups that God was then driving out. Uh, Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. I'll put this one image up, and it's an image of a, uh, one of their gods, and they would actually sacrifice infants to this god in horrible ways that I won't talk about. They had all types of sexually perverse acts of worship of all kinds I can't even talk about here, because uh, that they would practice back then. And what God was afraid of, not afraid of, concerned about, and actually would happen, and the warnings were that the people of Israel, if they were to be intermingling, they would then end up participating in the very things that God was warning them against about worshiping and participating in the worship of false gods. So that's why you'll see there is more to it than let's have some battles and have some fun with this. It was God's holy presence going through. A lot was at stake here. A lot was at stake because it was through the people of Israel that Jesus, the savior of the world, would be born. So there was a bigger story going on. 
when you just read that part about the Canaanites and the Israelites moving in, it was part of a much bigger story to just pull those bits out and then focus on them and then paint God in a certain way is missing the whole story. Much, much more was going on here. All right, a fifth thing to notice when you hear about these uh, battles and these times that God is then instructing uh, death to occur, we see a lot of ancient Near East hyperbolic, I'm sorry, hyperbolic war rhetoric being used. You'll see words from the scriptures, wipe out, totally destroy, annihilate them. Now, when you see those words, and then you say, okay, what happened after here? What happened after these battles? You'll see that the people actually lived on. There were survivors, there were people that they lived on, and it's not even mentioned. That's because war rhetoric was used at that time period, and it's just like, say, in football or certain sports today, you might say, like, we killed them, like, you know, uh, we destroyed them. You're not meaning like you actually killed them or destroyed them, but back then, when they compare with ancient Near East, other types of texts and different writings out there, it was common to use this hyperbolic, exaggerated war language. And every time when you see these words like totally destroy or wipe them out, it wasn't meaning literally all of them. It was talking about military strikes. It was talking about what strategic battles had to take place to drive the people out unless they wanted to repent and then they could worship God. But it was all about military strategic strikes not just a genocidal maniac like God is being uh, portrayed as. Um, a sixth thing is that God always, this is so important, God always gave warnings for hundreds of years to the Canaanite people that were in those lands, right? They had hundreds of years to turn, to be warned about it, and what happened was when they were warned about it, some people actually changed their minds and they worshiped God. I mean, think of this though, with Noah. Noah was building that ark for a long time. It says that people were so wicked, they had the opportunity to change, and we don't hear any record that they did. However, you also see other opportunities, like Rahab and her family in Jericho. They heard about this God of Israel. She turned and she said, I now trust in this God, your God of Israel, and guess what? She was then saved, and her family, she was rescued. You'll see the entire city of Nineveh in the story of Jonah, when judgment was going to come upon this city, and in this case, the city changed, and they repented. And they said, we believe in God. So what happens? God, they don't get judged. God spares them. You see, an evil king, it says one of the most wicked kings in existence, recorded in the scriptures in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, he sacrificed his children to false gods. He was an instigator of false religions in total rebellion against God. But at the end of his life, he repented and he turned and he humbled himself and God forgave him. So there's always opportunity to change. See, that's the God of the scriptures. That's the God who is compassionate, slow to anger, right? That's this God that we know of. I wanna read some other verses of God, right? The one that people are accusing of being ruthless and cruel. Here's God speaking in Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 21 through 23. He says, if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, 
that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses that they have committed will be remembered against them. Listen to God's heart here. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Like, that's the God of the Bible. The one who is saying like, I don't delight when people die. I want them to please turn. Ezekiel chapter 33, here's another one. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and they live. Then here's God pleading, look at these words. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? If someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. We see this continued in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when we see the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Right? That's our God, slow to anger, abounding in love, compassionate, forgiving. Here's the tough part though. There was death. Um, You can't erase it. You can't say, well, no one ever died. They all turned back. Many didn't turn to him. There were children who died, elderly who died, There were casualties in these strategic military battles as there is with any type of battle that happens. And civilians, you could say, died under God's direction of of a military strike happening. So that's the hardest part to kind of grasp. But here's what I know. Because you know the whole story of God and his compassion. You know about Jesus and forgiveness and the cross and sin being removed. What I know is that um, however, even though there's war battles and there's death, and the reality that there is men, women, and children who were killed under God's direction, we know that infants and those that are not yet accountable for their actions, they go to be, they go to be with Jesus when they die. Right? There's, and there might be horrid death and pain, but for all of eternity, they then be with Jesus. So if they're as hard as it is, and that's the hardest thing to, grab, to wrestle with about scripture is that God did instruct battles and there were deaths. But if any infants, those that were not accountable, those that didn't shake their fists against the God of Israel, they would be with Jesus right now because they were forgiven through what he would do on the cross later on. That's the God that we know. Exodus 34, six through seven, it says this again. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. I read this, I'm just kidding. I'm like, this is God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And we trust in this compassionate, and forgiving God. We may not understand 
some of the violence that occurred, but I trust in this God because I know him from beginning to end. And all I know is I am so personally thankful that God's promises are true. Slow to anger, compassionate, forgives me of when I sin, when I have sinned, when I do sin. He is merciful and he loves us. And you can experience God's compassion. There's that definite like, he's holy, you bet he is. You don't wanna mess with him, no you don't. But what a joy and comfort to know that as holy and mighty this God is, he cared about us and he loves us and that is why Jesus came, died, took on sin, rose again. We are clean of our sin. Like, think of that. Think of all of the, oh no, the holy God, but we're clean through Jesus. When you put your faith in him, if you haven't, please do. You're clean, you're forgiven, he's loving, he's kind, he's compassionate, and that's the God of the Bible. That's who he really is. Now, I just barely could get into some of this, and there's a book out uh, called Is God a Moral Monster by a guy named Paul Capan. It's a trustworthy book. He wrote a whole book on this topic, and the one that I wrote, there's just three chapters. He wrote a whole book if you want to dive in more. But all I know is I'm so thankful to that true God, not the false one that's being portrayed through memes and some of this criticism. So Lord, as we're here this morning, and oh, what an uncomfortable topic to talk about. Violence is not easy to understand. When you were part of it, then God, there's so much wickedness and violence on this earth that human beings are doing on their own. Oh God, please intervene and help those that are experiencing violence and things that are not from you, but human beings out of sinful ways are causing it to happen. And I just thank you for all of us that we have a loving and compassionate God and you forgive us and you're slow, loving, slow to anger, compassionate, and I'm so thankful um, for you. And that's who you really and truly are.